Today's sermon comes from Galatians 4, 8 through 20. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn your back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to become once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I might have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged your eyes out and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. So the year was 2000, it's 2000, and there was a scientist by the name of William Walsh. William Walsh took the strands of hair from Beethoven's body that were collected and they were saved. And he ran an experiment on Beethoven's hair and found out that in in these strands of hair, his body contained more than 100 times the amount of lead that any person's body could contain. 100 times more than what our body needs. Now, through this study, they were able to find and trace back where this substantial amount of lead came from. Through the research, they were able to determine that the lead that was in his body came from the mineral spa where Beethoven went to treat himself. Could you imagine wanting to go on your spa day and have a treat yourself day, and then that spa was killing you slowly? You had no idea. That's tragically ironic here. It's tragically ironic. The very thing that he thought was going to bring himself joy and relief was actually slowly poisoning him to death. This is precisely where the Galatian church is this morning in our text. What they were doing is they were listening to these Judaizers who were trying to improve upon the gospel by adding all these Jewish rules and regulations on top of God's grace, to be good Christians. We're gonna add all this stuff to God's grace. This is how you'll be a good Christian. But in reality, what they were doing was slowly poisoning their faith by adding rules on top of God's grace. They were poisoning themselves spiritually. Now think about their situation. Think about Galatia. Think about this church. The Apostle Paul was their pastor. Think about that. The Apostle Paul himself. 
They were getting the gospel from an apostle. This was beautiful, flowing water to them. Not long after Christ had been resurrected, and they were being lured away. They were falling away. And this made Paul really sad. He was very perplexed. He was, he was in anguish over this church, so much so that it made him question whether they truly had a saving faith. And he wonders, are you even known by God? So what does this mean for us this morning? If this could happen to the Galatians, it could certainly happen to us. So taking a page right out of Paul's book, the question for all of us then is, are you known by God? Are you known by God? Now, I'm not meaning, do you know something about God and Jesus? Not just being acquainted with God and Jesus. There was a time in my life where I was a kid where I would have said, yeah, I know about God and Jesus. My exposure to Jesus was WWE with Stone Cold Steve Austin. He had this shirt that used to say Austin 316. And I had no clue what that was, but my friend's parents, I was like, what does that mean? And they were like, well, it's this blasphemous kind of rendition of John 316. So I looked it up and I was like, all right, well, I kind of got the Jesus thing. And if somebody would have asked me, I would have said, yeah, I know Jesus. I know that John 3.16 verse. But that's not what Jesus is getting at. That's not what Paul is getting at. If you remember back in Matthew 7, Jesus says that there's gonna come a day when a lot of people are gonna meet him and they're gonna say, but Jesus, I knew you. I did this, 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 and this. And he's gonna say, I never knew you. So we must ask ourselves, are we known by God? Are we known by Jesus? And Paul answers that question and helps us answer that question in two different ways. And you'll see that in your outline in your order of worship this morning. The two ways and kind of two indicators that we're known by God is that we have a love of God's word and that we have a love of God's people. And let's unpack these two a little bit more. If you look with me in verse 15 and 16, we see our first point, a love of God's word. I'm gonna read that again for us. It says, what then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? For these young Christians... Paul is asking some, some very deep and hard spiritual questions to jar them from their spiritual decay. These are soul-shaking questions. And it's in these questions where we learn that when Paul originally brought them the gospel, they received God's word with blessedness. We're learning at one time that they were a lover of God's truth. And God's instruction. In the Greek, this term blessedness is really, really full. It, it can be translated as a joy beyond circumstance. A joy beyond circumstance. And it's this joy 
that the Galatians received the gospel with. They had a joy for God's word and truth, and this joy was characteristic of this body of believers. They loved hearing about Jesus. They loved learning about the resurrection. They loved hearing the truth about who God is and what he has done for them. They loved God's word. They had a joy for it. Keith and I had a seminary professor. His name is Doug Kelly. And he writes this. He said, the best advertisement for Jesus is a joyful Christian. The best advertisement for Jesus is a joyful Christian. However, something here was killing their joy. Something was killing their joy for God's word. And what is it? Look at verses nine and 10. Paul shows here that they're going back to these elementary principles of the world, following days and seasons and months and so on. And a great question to ask at this point is, what in the world were these elementary principles? What were these elementary principles? Well, let's get super elementary with it. Let's take it all the way back to the beginning. I suggest that the most basic elementary principle of the world is that God isn't really that good and God isn't really that loving. We see this in Genesis. Adam and Eve were together living with God. And in this relationship, they bought the lie that God really isn't that good and really isn't that loving. So what did they do? They turned from God's instruction. They took matters into their own hands. They disobeyed God and plunged all of creation into sin. It doesn't end there. How about the Israelites in Egypt? What did God do with them? He brought them out of physical slavery, promised them that he was taking them to a land flowing with milk and honey. And along the way, he provided for every one of their needs, but they got impatient. God doesn't really love me. He's bringing me out in this desert to die. I need to take matters back into my own hands. I'm gonna disobey God. God, I would prefer to be in slavery than to be in a relationship with you. It's happening here with the Galatians. The Galatians bought the lie that grace really isn't a free gift. That yeah, grace got me on the bus, but now I need to be really good to stay on the bus. They bought that lie that they need to follow Jewish cultural laws to be a good Christian. What happened to them when they started mixing in man-made laws with God's grace? They lost their joy, and they lost their joy for God's word. The joy of their salvation was fading into the pain of performance where their relationship with God hinged on their ability to be good. And guess what? When anything hinges on our ability to be good, we do some pretty weird things. 
Richard Foster tells a story about Hans the tailor. And Hans the tailor had this sterling reputation for creating the most custom suits for all of his clients. So this businessman, he hears about Hans the tailor's reputation and he goes to Hans, Hans gets his measurements, he gets his suit, and then he comes back and he picks it up and he notices the sleeve's a little bit twisted here, the lapel's a little bit off, the jacket's sitting a little bit crooked, then the pants don't fit just right, but it's a Hans the tailor's suit. So the guy gets in the jacket, he twists his arm around, he gets it in the sleeve, his kind of arms kind of hanging like that, and he's got his leg in the suit, and he's hanging out. Then he's like, all right, got my suit. Starts walking down the road in his Hans the Taylor suit. A guy sees him, and he's like, man, that looks like a Hans the Taylor suit. And he's like, it really is. And the guy's like, this is amazing. I knew Hans was a good tailor, but I could never imagine that he could make a suit fit so perfectly on someone as odd-shaped as you. Man, Hans is good. You see, if we're not careful, we can do that exact same thing in the church. We can get some good ideas of what a cultural good Christian should look like. And then we push and shove and twist and bend and force people into these man-made configurations so that they fit wonderfully. And this is actually what spiritual death looks like. This is a wooden legalism, man-made rules on top of God's laws that will destroy people's souls. This is poison here. Now, how do we do this as a church? Not East, but how do we do this as a church in general, all over America primarily? How do we do this? Well, one of the ways we do it is the explicit and implicit ways that we treat single people. Oh, you're 25, 30, you're out of college, you're not, you're not married? Uh, like, what's your deal? Like, you don't wanna, like, date? Like, you don't like, you don't, you don't like people? Like, what, you don't wanna have kids? Like, what, what, I just, you're, oh, all right, whatever, whatever is good for you, I guess. And then you start texting. You don't really get to know them, but every time you seem like, hey, I've got the perfect person for you. Hey, have you thought of Christian Mingle? Hey, have you thought of all these other things of people you can go out with? This is how we create second-class Christians in the church. And what's driving this is this implicit man-made rule that to be a good Christian, you must be married. We do this in other ways too, particularly how we treat people who struggle with mental health. Oh, you're depressed? Depressed? Isn't that just a funny word for feeling bummed out? Like you're sad all the time? 
Like, like you have so much to be thankful for. Like, read the Bible. Like, you, you're, you're just sad and you don't want to get out of the bed. Cheer up. Figure it out. Just stop being sad. Anxiety. What do you mean? You just worry about stuff like all day long, like your old medicine for it? You sh- why are you worried all the time? Don't you read the Bible? You hear all these Jesus jukes you're just slamming people with? What, you just, why are you scared about that? That's like three years away and you're worrying about this now? You need to just get off that medicine. I've got some essential oils that we can slap on that. Too soon for the oils. <laughs> but you see, as funny as that is, and I love essential oils, <laughs> what we're doing is we're creating this man made rule that to be a strong person of faith that you can't struggle with anxiety and depression. You can't struggle. You must be happy. And this is the spiritual poison that causes people to wear a mask on Sundays. This causes people to wear a mask in your community group where their faith is measured by their ability to be good. And this is do-good poison. And this do-good poison will strip you of the joy of God's word and God's grace. So what does God's grace say to those people? What does it say to people who are struggling? God's grace says that in Jesus, I know what's behind that mask and I love you anyway. It says you're never truly single because I am with you and I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. God's grace says in that cloud of depression where you are sad for no reason and all you want to do is watch Netflix and sit in your pajamas when you can't even fathom the thought of leaving your bedroom I'm there with you. Are you worried? Are you scared? Are you struggling? Do you feel that crippling anxiety that's triggered by whatever is causing your triggers to happen? God is saying, I love you right where you are. I'm gonna be there carrying you the whole time. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You are mine, and I'd love you just the way you are. The gospel reminds us that we can have joy that transcends our circumstances because Jesus knows us better than we could ever know ourselves, and he loves us anyway. It doesn't mean that when anxiety or depression or pain hits that we just stuff it aside. And we say, oh, life's great, life's wonderful. And then we go home and then we cry our eyes out in our bedroom. No, what it means is that 
in the middle of our pain, in the middle of our tears and struggles, we cry out to God. We come to him in his word. And in that, we find our risen savior. And at every single page, we're reminding that this momentary affliction is not the end of our story. This is why we need God's word. This is why we need the gospel. We need to hear God's promises to us and to be reminded of them constantly because you need to get this right here because the good news of Christ's resurrection conforms us to Jesus and the power of his resurrection in the middle of painful circumstances instead of us trying to act like a good Christian and be good in the middle of painful circumstances. And what that does is it spiritually deforms us. So God's grace conforms and our trying to be good deforms. Where are you on that spectrum? That's the most important question that you can ask. Are you trusting in God's grace and grace alone, or are you trusting in your own self-performance? So our first indicator that God knows us is our love for his word, our love for the gospel. And the second indicator that God knows us is our love for God's people. And that's our final point. So our love for God's people. So look with me in verses 12 and 13 there. It says, brothers, that's family language, I entreat you become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. And you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Here we're getting a fuller picture inside of this Galatian community, inside of this church here. This was a welcoming and hospitable community with a love for outcasts. They loved outcasts. You'll notice Paul describes this bodily ailment. And culturally, this bodily ailment would have made him worthy of scorn, despise, and rejection. We don't really know what that bodily ailment is. There's been a lot of writing about it. Ultimately, we just don't know. But whatever this ailment was in first century uh, Greco-Roman life, this ailment would have been a sign that you were cursed by the gods, that you were uh, possessed. And their reaction to somebody like this was when they would see him walking down the street, they'd spit at him and they would shun this person. You have no place with us. You don't need to bring that up in my cul-de-sac. We are not having it, Paul. But not with the Galatians. Even as haggard and unsightly as Paul was, they welcomed him like they would have welcomed the risen Jesus. 
That's a huge compliment. Not only were they hospitable, but they were extremely generous with Paul as well. Look at verse 15. It says that they would have gouged their eyes out and given them to Paul. And this was just a graphic first century phrase for meaning they were holding nothing back from Paul. What was, what was theirs was Paul, all right? So what are we learning here? We're learning that when the Galatians were drinking from the spring of God's grace and freedom, they not only loved learning about God and growing in his word, but they loved each other and others and outcasts really well. They had this beautiful balance between loving God's word and loving God's people. And that's a wonderful thing to have. But sadly, just like we saw earlier, the decay that doing good had on their joy for God's word, it hurt their love for God's people as well. Look in verse 16, you'll notice how Paul is now becoming their enemy. Verse 17 tells us that they were being closed off and shut off from the rest of the church, from the rest of God's people. Their once vibrant hospitality was turning into this hostility. And they're turning away from Paul who loved him like a family member, even relating it to childbirth. This is not to do away with how painful childbirth is. This is the love that Paul had for this church, that sacrificial, painful, long-suffering love. They're turning. So what we see is that it's really easy to love people with masks. It's really easy to love good Christians. It's really easy to love in very superficial ways other superficial people. Those relationships where it's just cokes and jokes or a modern day application of that, LaCroix and laughter, right? It's real easy to be real surface level with a bunch of fake people when everybody's faking it. It's easy to love people who haven't encroached on your physical and mental energy. It's easy to love people who haven't caused you pain or great hurt. But we also know that it's really, really hard to love God's people when they hurt you terribly, when they wound you, when you feel like there's nothing else in me that I can give that person. Corey Tinboom was a, a Dutch Christian who, during Hitler's reign of terror, was taking in and housing many runaway Jews, many runaway people. She was eventually caught and she was sent into various prisons and concentration camps many of her family members, her sister Betsy being one of them. And it's inside of these horrible living conditions, Betsy and Corey were able to steal a Bible. And in this uh, prison cell where they were once held, 
all of these people who were once biting, uh, fighting and bickering against each other, they had this Bible in front of them under one little light bulb while all the guards were asleep and they would hold a little worship service. They would translate the text into various other languages. They would sing all these songs. And in the middle of this horrible living situation, there they had God's word. Betsy and her father, Betsy and Corey's father and her brother, they ended up dying in these concentration camps. And by God's grace, Corey was freed. And after she was freed, she spent many years touring around as an evangelist, telling people about the experiences she went through and telling them about God's grace and his love and his mercy and the person of work in Jesus. Well, after one speaking engagement in particular, when she was in Munich, a man came walking down the center aisle and Corey remembered that face very much. This man came to her and he told her this. He says, fine message. I was once a guard at Ravensbrück, which was the concentration camp where her and Betsy were. But since then, I've become a Christian. I know God has forgiven me of the horror and the cruel things that I've done there, but I wanna hear it from you. Will you forgive me? Mm. She writes this. I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. His face brought back the huge room with harsh overhead lights where Betsy and I with other women were beaten and mocked by this man who was responsible for her sister's death. And she writes, I know that I must forgive those who've injured me. She had to remind herself in this moment now that forgiveness is not an emotion, but it's an act of the will. And she prayed this prayer, Jesus, help me. Jesus, help me. I can lift a hand. I can do that much. But you're going to have to supply the forgiveness. So in this moment, she says, I lifted my hand and this feeling started in her shoulder. It raced all the way down her arm and it sprang into their joined hands. And she writes this, a healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being. And she said in tears, I forgive you, brother, with my whole heart. She said she had never known God's love so intensely as she experienced in that moment. And she writes this, but even so I realized it was not my love. I had tried and I didn't have the power. It was the power of the Holy Spirit in me. She tried, she couldn't. It was the power of the Holy Spirit in her. What we see from this example with Corey's life is the answer to the question I asked earlier. Does God know you? Does God know you? 
In verse 19, Paul says that if Christ is formed in you, meaning if Christ dwells in you, your life will resemble more and more the life of Christ and it will work out like it did here with Corey, where you find God's word to be the source of blessedness, joy that surpasses circumstance in unspeakably difficult circumstances where there's no joy to be found. Not only that, but if Jesus is formed in you, you will love God's people, even outcasts. Even when forgiveness and love seem almost impossible to grant. So where are you this morning? If you're here and you realize you've been trying really hard to be a good person, you may even be here because like me, you spent years sitting in a church trying to impress someone else. And you realize that I can't do this much longer. That's you this morning. I encourage you and invite you to come to Jesus this morning. Through faith alone, even the size of a mustard seed, to cling to him this morning and find the joy of forgiveness apart from your works, but only because of Christ's work. Are you here this morning and you're like, I know that God's spirit lives in me, but I'm just in this really difficult season right now. Nothing seems to be going right. I'm struggling to even open God's word and find joy. I'm struggling to even come worship. I really don't feel like being in a community group. I don't feel like being around any Christians. If that's you this morning, Jesus is right there with you. He hasn't gone anywhere. And my encouragement to you is to come to Jesus even now, to cling to the promises of his grace, to pray the prayer of the psalmist that says, renew the joy of your salvation to me. I pray that that would be your prayer this morning. I pray that you would press into him in the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, that that same spirit in this season would give you life, would give you joy, would help you see the light of his grace even under the darkest of clouds and circumstances, a peace that passes understanding. That can be yours this morning because he who is faithful, he'll do it. And he'll never leave you and he'll never forsake you. Let's pray. Father, although many of us, by your grace, are not currently in concentration camps, we're pressed in on every side with expectations from others, from ourselves, from the world, we hear the voice of Satan in the background saying, you're never good enough, you'll never be good enough, you'll never be good enough. 
He reminds us of our failures. We're our own worst critics. And because of this, we turn inward on ourselves. We start drinking the cup of the poison of self-works and self-help. And God, it's killing us. Would you by your spirit start a revival in our souls? Would you renew the joy of our salvation? Would you help us to come to you in your word through prayer, through worship, and to find you there? The one who cries out, it is finished. Help us to cling to that promise. Help us to cling to the fact that no one will ever be able to snatch us out of your hand. Nothing in heaven and on earth. Help us to hear your voice. Help us to love you and sing through the tears. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.